Mary, so I just actually put the phone down. Um, our really good friend, Monica, and her colleague, Jerry, just kind of patched a phone call through to us. And they had a really, a really vital message for us. Do you mind if I share it? Please do. Yeah. So we were kind of figuring out like, okay, what do we do with our Patreon largesse, which thank you all so much. Yes, and thank you. Together with Monica and with the cheerleading of Jerry, we've decided that we're going to start a private detective agency. I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I can point us to some certification programs that have been in my bookmarks for literally years. Do you mind telling people what the one case we're going to take on? It's sort of like people who are like, I only need to solve John Bonet. Like, what's it for us? Right. I mean, it's not the JFK assassination. You might have thought that MLK Jr. assassination. No, it's literally the only case we can think about right now. And that's who let Sherbs fall. Bring it on. Um, honestly, like, they all let her fall. That's what I learned. Everybody let her down. Every single person let her down. Everybody did. Welcome, everyone, to American Girls, the podcast where we're reliving the American Girls series, book by book. I'm Mary. I'm still Allison. And, you know, Allison, I, I truly think you would not let me fall on the mat. I would never. I mean, I would always want to hit zero. And I would never, in our bureaucracy, let you fall. And I would insist that I would not go to Daytona and be on the mat without you. No, absolutely not. It's wrong. And like whatever Ladarius needs in terms of like his support, I know that Jerry is going to be there. Like Jerry is going to literally and figuratively cheer everyone on. Like this show raised a really powerful philosophical question, which is who cheers the cheerleader? <sighs> I've been sitting with that for some time. It's Monica. It's Monica. It's Monica. And there's been a lot of chit chat about people who are pro and anti Monica. And, you know, I was listening to a different show that said um, it was saying that basically every time they fall, they have to do push ups. And Monica never does push ups. And somebody was like, isn't she culpable? Why isn't she doing push ups? I think she's doing five times as many push-offs off screen that we're not seeing. Like, I've read a few different think pieces on what is happening there, especially with what seems like her not caring about people's medical injuries. And you know that it's obviously edited. You know that cheer is giving you a very small window into what it's actually like. I think there can be both problems with people being negligent with other people's health. And when you look at her, that's a woman who spends hours in the gym. Yeah. And there's that crazy montage of you seeing her work out where she's like lifting the heavy rope and punching and doing God knows what. Not part of my fitness routine. I'll say that. And it's like one, Monica can and likely has killed someone in this or a past life. And two, like, she's a human push-up. Like, she's not – she doesn't need to be doing those push-ups. No, she doesn't. And I felt like I was riding along with everyone else of my baseline interest in cheerleading was zero prior to starting this docuseries. Right. And by the end, we basically were online, like, prepaying for uniforms. Yeah. We got in real deep real fast, although I did – text you and say kind of with no context like I don't think we could actually be cheerleaders no I don't think so I remember being in high school and when I was a freshman the cheerleading coach did approach me cold in the lunchroom and just said like we need a top for the pyramid and you're pretty short like are you open to it 
And at the time I wasn't, but now I've seen this docuseries and it's like, maybe. <laughs> I I think what's fascinating about it from kind of an American girl perspective is the extent to which like it is still primarily a female dominated sport. And it got me thinking a lot where we attended graduate school, women's basketball was a very big deal. And pretty much you were close to being the pinnacle or the top if you were playing women's basketball at our grad school. At the same time, the likelihood of you having a good paying career past that was next to nothing. And I just recently watched the new docuseries about Aaron Hernandez. And, you know, he's like a young, very talented football player. Like he didn't doubt that if he continued with football as a career, it would be lucrative. Part of what happens on Cheer is you see that like after these two years of community college, there's no more. There's no pro. There's no more up. They have nowhere else to go. And I think that's what makes it so intense and so devastating. Yeah. And you can kind of see how seductive Navarro is for these cheerleaders because it really is the high point, as you're saying, of their professional lives in the sense that they're preparing all year, all the time for a two minute routine at Daytona. And that's just mind blowing to me to think about that level of dedication. But you can also see kind of the seductive nature of that life. And I guess of the attention that they're getting, because it seems like from looking on Instagram that a lot of the cast members who at the end of the docuseries have moved on, like Jerry was going to Louisville, which was his dream school, like Ladarius was leaving, Lexi got kicked out, like a lot of them, she's back. And I think Jerry's back too. Oh, So I'm kind of like, what's going on? And it's like, Monica has a real appeal. I guess you would just get another associate's degree. Yeah. And I think that's what, um, what's her name? Other Morgan. Morgan. Oh my God, Morgan. That's what Morgan was doing. I'm kind of like appalled that you forgot Morgan already. Why? I'm bad with names. I mean, it's like, like, I barely know who you are. Yeah. (sighs) Now you're making me feel worse. That scene when she's running. Yeah. And she's talking, the voiceover is about like contemplating ending her life and living in that trailer alone. I was literally like, I can't believe this was your life. And at the same time, it's like when people demean women's sports, they have no idea what like the dedication and skill that goes into it. But also, I think for people who aren't sports people, like, you know, I forgot the Super Bowl is a Sunday, et cetera. But huh <laughs> <laughs> I played sports growing up and I much more enjoyed playing than watching although I do like watching basketball but there's something about the ritual that goes with preparing for a sport preparing for a game every week or whatever it is that adds su- such order and mindfulness to your life that I really do appreciate the the hold it can have over people but then also what do you do when that's taken away like what do you do next and I think that's the docuseries I want to see next is like what comes next for all of them when cheerleading is over I don't know I I think that's why they talked about the alumni having such a strong relationship because they're always trying to get back to that place okay the most stressed out I was though was during the scavenger hunt when they were quizzing them on the history of the squad and they were like who had the flu in 2002? Lexi! <laughs> and she was like, uh, I don't know, Wayne or like whatever. I, that is my nightmare. I am so bad with names. I would never make it. I would never finish the scavenger hunt. I would forget who I was. It would be an absolute disaster. I think what I liked about it was it took a subculture very seriously. Mm-hmm. And it took you in and it kind of let you make sense of it. And I know that people who are sharper and smarter about sports saw things that I didn't see you know, about different issues, but that's because I'm not as well versed in that. And by the same token, 
again with the Aaron Hernandez docuseries, I don't really know almost anything about football or about his career, but it wasn't about that. It was about him as a person and kind of how people both like pushed him in directions and then really let him down Mm. in a lot of ways and things that he was responsible for. Hmm. Yeah, I, I love watching sports documentaries, so this was right up my alley in the sense that I love anything that's biographical or autobiographical. So hearing the ways that they narrated their own experience through cheerleading, and I'm sure Aaron Hernandez kind of in a similar way, hearing people talk about him, mm-hmm. I'm sure was really interesting. But yeah, I, I can't get enough of cheer. I need more. I mean, there's like other things that we're trying to figure out, like what's the exact quotient that we need. And I don't know, you keep telling me about Cleveland, like that you just need kind of more of that in your life also. Listen. I don't, can you explain where that comes from? Did I make a withdrawal from our joint bank account (laughs) to buy myself a plane ticket to Cleveland last night? Yes, I did. Yeah. You have not seen the latest episode of Bachelor, and I apologize in advance. I know some people don't like it when we talk about Bachelor, but that's just kind of where we're at in our lives right now. So you just have to give it to us because otherwise, you know, (laughs) we'll explode. They, okay, if you've not seen the show, once they do the intro episode and they narrow some of the ladies down, they start to go on the road, which is where they sort of stay for the rest of the season. So Chris comes in with great solemnity. is like, ladies, pack your bags. We're sending you to, like, Peter's already left town. We're sending you to meet him. And they're all like, oh, like expecting a great locale. And all of a sudden he's like, you're going to Cleveland. And they're like, um, hmm. <laughs> How do we process this on television? It was so dark. It was, they did a better job a couple of seasons ago, I think with Nick's season when they announced they were sending them to Wisconsin and a- half of them actually legitimately were like, Wisconsin. And like, they weren't even <laughs> trying to go to like the, any American girl sites in Wisconsin. So I don't no. really know. Now, listen, if you're listening in Wisconsin and or Cleveland, just know that I grew up in the Hartford area, which is a place that has billboards that used to literally say New England's rising star question mark. People would graffiti <laughs> a question mark onto that. Um, so I get it. It was, Allison, such a crazy episode. I won't go into too much specifics, but literally there's a date where one of the women goes out with Peter to, a, you know, those concerts where it's normally a musician you've never heard of. I know exactly what happens. Okay. So they go and it's like, surprise, it's her ex-boyfriend. Here's the issue with this season, and we are not the only ones to be saying this. It's too meta. There there have always been, like, winks and nods to the audience of, like, you know that this is the kind of thing that producers would pull. Right. But the way they have brought back the woman who previously pursued him, the way that they have been so deliberate in exposing friendships that people are covering up, relationships that people are covering up, like, the bones are too transparent now. I think they regret picking him as the bachelor because they know he's like a human potato and or not all that interesting. And he like there's no there there. So they have to work overtime and they're going too far with it to try to make drama around him. Yeah. And it's like nobody cares. Okay, he's a pilot. We've already had an aviation date. We've already had an aviation (laughs) challenge. It's like that well is running dry. Like he's so thirsty. He brought a woman to his parents vow renewal on date one. I'm like, sir, these are your parents. Like, this lady is not going to be around in 10 minutes. We both know that. Like, what are you doing? I should add, and this was like the greatest drama for me on Monday night as we were watching. We watch with a group of friends, and often you were working. Allison's already rolling her eyes. Allison, (laughs) this was serious for me, okay? Now, listen, in the past, I've talked about skincare and my lack of knowledge about that on this show and what I would call, 
you know, similarly to The Bachelor calling women over 30 who admit their real age brave, it was brave of me. (laughs) So our friends were talking about skincare related things and how sweaty he is and his pores and this and that. They were saying terms like microabrasion, things I don't understand. I'm sort of following, and thanks to our listeners who sent us a lot of skincare recs, because of you, I could understand words like La Mer, okay? Yes. So yes. I know what that is. So they're all like talking about different products. They like, and then at one point I was like trying to be cool. Like, you know, when you're with people and they're talking about something you don't know and you just lob literally the only thing you know into the fray because you're like, I want to be part of this. So there's a lull and I say like, so does anyone here use Seabreeze? <laughs> You're looking off into the distance. It was like those 90s ads where it's for salsa where they're like, New York City. That's what happened to me Monday night. And everyone literally was like, this is a shock. You should be embarrassed. That's not what they said to me, but it was just implied. And then they were like, Seabreeze burns your skin off. True or false? It does, much like an apricot scrub. If you think back to like very early times of this show, we used to describe what we called our qualifications and not qualifications for talking about these topics. And I think there are topics, you know, like the mechanics of cheerleading and like facial products where it's just like not an expertise. I think I just have to sit with the fact that I don't know what I'm doing on this front and I should just remove myself from the situation. Like I'm sort of operating as if it's like I can talk about face wash because I have a face (laughs) and it's like there's actually more knowledge involved. Like you are here to make friends and you are here for the right reasons. So you have the important things locked down. Um, I think what's always so fascinating to me increasingly is I think part of the challenge that the producers set for themselves is like, how can we choose someone who's like an epitome of just middle of the road and make women who are exceptional pine for him? Like, I think that's where the producers like get their kicks at this point where it's like, how do we make people who really are extraordinary pine for mediocrity and it's working you take everything away from them you take away cheer you take away netflix you take away all of these things and they will long for it it's so dark honestly they almost all quit at the end of the episode i was like good for you maybe some of you should date each other i don't care anymore like i'm coming back next week but it's like (laughs) (sighs) i know it's dark it's a lot lots going down also i don't want to get too deep into this book glow up has come into my life and the makeup show, another thing I don't know about. And yeah. You like sort of dipped your toe in, but if anyone out there is watching Glow Up, please be in touch with me. That's all I'm going to say. Val Absolutely. using the phrase ding dong for every day speech. <laughs> yeah. I wish I was that brave. Anyway, that's all I want to say about that. But no, it's like you're, you occasionally have forays into like super niche shows of that ilk, like super niche reality. Mm hmm. And then it's like, I have true crime. And that's the balance. You know, but it's like we meet in the middle. And I will say just to tease this at the end of the episode today, I do have a very highly curated clip I would love to share with you from the history of reality TV. It's something very near and dear to my heart. So just listeners, please stay. This episode is brought to you by Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to advertisers for native podcast sponsorships. 
What does that actually mean? Well, for our purposes, it means that we don't have to run ads on our show for products and services we don't believe in. We take this community really seriously, so we've in an ongoing way been trying to match with products that actually meet our mission and our values and are things that we're proud to support. So Podcorn has been a really wonderful service where we've been able to log on to their site and find a bunch of advertisers who want to work with us that we're excited to work with as well. If you're creator and you're looking for brands that you might want to work with, Podcorn is a great option. They have a marketplace mission to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and control. And you never give up exclusive rights to your podcast. Click the link in our show notes to learn how to sign up and to learn more about Podcorn. That's right. So just head over to podcorn.com and get started today. Stay tuned. Now, we're really excited because we have been with Kirsten now since, you know, the past three to four months, we have been kind of going through her stories. And now we're not moving ahead in a huge time frame, but we're moving ahead to 1864. And today we are going to be getting into Meet Addie, which is the first book that came out in the Addie Walker series. Mm -hmm. It's very exciting. Did you read these as a child? I loved these books. These are actually the only books I sort of remember because they are my favorite books. And I remember how excited I was when my grandmother gave these to me for Christmas. And I was, I remember vividly reading book one, actually, because I didn't complete book one in one sitting. My mom used to read them to me at night. And I went to school the next day and I just could not concentrate because mm. I was so nervous that Addie and her mother would not make it when they like I basically put it down after they had started to run away and spent the next day in school thinking, I I just need to know, like, is Addie okay? Yeah. And if you're if you're not super familiar with Addie or if this was a character that wasn't part of your childhood, book one, a lot of things happen because we first meet Addie Walker as a nine-year-old. Um, who has been enslaved by a man named Mr. Stevens, and she and her family are living on the Stevens Plantation in North Carolina. It's a tobacco plantation. And by the end of the first book, she and her mother, at the very least, have escaped and are making their way to another location towards freedom. And I know in subsequent books, they are all set in Philadelphia, but in this very first book, We meet Addie in a really um, excellently rendered scene. We meet her in a cabin and it's a very intense scene. Like you're immediately drawn into her story. And between 1864 and 1865, Addie turns 10 years old and the Civil War comes to a close. So it really takes you right into a critical, a critical point. So we can talk a bit. I actually think we're going to talk quite a lot over the next six books about how Addie came to be in terms of first the Pleasant Company universe, because there's been a lot of attention on sort of how long it took Pleasant Company to have a character that wasn't white and to start to center other really important stories. Um, So there's that first piece. This book came out in 1993. So it is part of the original suite of Pleasant Company. And I'll just give us that quick backstory that comes from the publisher. Addie Walker's family is planning a dangerous escape from slavery in the summer of 1864. But before they can make the escape, the worst happens. 
Master Stevens decides to sell some of his slaves, including Papa and Addie's brother, Sam. Addie and Mama take the terrible risk of escaping by themselves, hoping that the family eventually will be together again in Philadelphia. Set during America's own struggle over slavery, the Civil War, Addie's story is one of great courage and love, love of family, and love of freedom. Yeah, so there's a lot going on here, and we're going to get into it. And as you noted, there have been a lot of think pieces that we are going to think with to help us get into the book, to the history of the book. But I think it's important for us to just note some a limitation of our interpretation of this from the jump, which is that we're both white. And I think when we talk about the history of reading and what books can mean to us and how they make us and form our identities, and a lot of the think pieces that are out there that are really wonderful, and we're going to share them, there's a lot of discussions about um, what it meant to be a young black girl and get Addie. What did she mean to your life? Um, Was she empowering? Um, Was her setting as an enslaved person um, upsetting? What did this mean to you? And a lot of these pieces get at that. So obviously, we can't speak to that. And we're not going to try to. Um, So we just want to note that kind of limitation from the start and kind of framing our discussion of Addie. I think what's critical is we have already heard from people, some of whom reached out to us way back in Felicity times, telling us about their relationship that they had with either an Addie doll or with the stories that are from the Addie universe. And I think what's important is we're interested in sharing how we read these books now as 30-somethings, but we're also always very interested in both your recollections of how this resonated with you or it didn't, as well as any kind of relationship folks have to it now. And so there are people who have reached out and said that they acquired an Addie doll as an adult. There are also people who have responded and had entire Twitter threads about why they think owning an Addie doll is something that is problematic. And I kind of, in my mind, this is conversant with discussion over Harriet Tubman being on the $20 bill. There are people for whom that's an incredibly important way to capture her legacy. There are also people who would rightfully say, like, all the language that's bound up with that is a problem. You're putting a person who had a commercial value in her lifetime on money. Mm -hmm. So you're taking a person who was a commodity, who was, you know, pretty much always at risk of being sold and making her face, like, her vision currency. So I think all these things kind of fit together where we want to hear from people about how you relate to it, but also doing our own reading and trying to make sense of what's already been said. Because as you mentioned, Aisha Harris, Marsha Chatlin, other folks have written brilliant things about these stories. Right. And this isn't just a notable book series because it talks about, it features the first Black Doll and the American Girl canon, but I think because it also offers us a place to reflect about the construction of whiteness, which I think is also bound up with the history of slavery in our country, and is something to kind of sit with as well. Like, I think a couple months ago when we were talking, I was talking to a black literary scholar with whom I was working at the time, and I mentioned to her that we were doing this show, and she kind of got nervous and said, are you guys covering Addie? And I said, yeah. And she said she had a sister who was our age and her sister loved Addie. Like she, Addie was a really important doll for her, but she, this person was just that much older than her sister that she was not really into American girl. It kind of passed her by. And she challenged her sister when she got her as a gift and said, who wants a slave doll? And I think, I think about that all the time ever since she mentioned that to me. And, And what does it mean then to, 
honor, you know, this history and this story in the form of Addie's narrative, but then to sell Addie in the American Girl store and in the catalog to put a price on her personhood, even though it's fictional. Um, Yeah, so I mean, this is certainly fraught. And we've certainly moved on from the territory of you know, the greatest conflict in your life is wanting a horse that's not yours or letting a raccoon into your cabin when you've been told not to. Yes. And I think part of what's important about the series is I mentioned earlier that the very first scene really pulls you in. And within the American Girl universe, again, there has been a lot written about who was chosen to write the book by Pleasant Company, why and how. And the woman who wrote this series, Connie Porter, we were talking off air just before, has written lots of other books, including books for adults. And her strength as a writer shows on every single page. Oh, yeah. And so I think people put a different kind of microscope rightfully on this series. And I think part of what's important is to let you know, what she was thinking come through because she has done interviews in ways similar to Valerie Tripp where she explains kind of what she was thinking. We can actually figure out, okay, Connie Porter chose to write this in a particular way or Connie Porter was told to write this in a particular way because there's there's a bit of both in this book. Mm. And we know that because she's been very open with people who have written think pieces about why certain things are the way that they are. And, right. you know, everything down to, like, why is her name Addie? Like, that that was a very particular choice. We know that because she's given interviews, and that really helps. I think in particular, I don't know if you want to get into this right now, but the Aisha Harris piece for me is so important because if we're going to link to this in the show notes, but it is basically a history of the Addie series. That's exactly what it is. And it, it has a lot of really stunning revelations that were totally news to me about their process. And I thought that was really fascinating. Like among other things, they, you know, it wasn't their immediate first choice to set the first black American girl doll in slavery that I think they mentioned that they debated time periods like the Harlem Renaissance, for example. Mm -hmm. And so again, this Aisha Harris piece, the making of an American girl, part of the impetus for it was she wrote it in 2016, which was when Melody, who is set in the civil rights movement in the 1960s, it's when her doll came out. And when Melody came out, she was one of still a very small number of historical dolls who were minorities in American history. And this article also notes that Cecile Ray, um, who is from New Orleans and is considered biracial, had been archived within three years of being Mm. released. So it really still just was Addie and then Melody with that addition just three years ago. I think a a quote that kind of gets at this tension that we're talking about, she mentions, as you were saying, that like even within families, people felt divided, friend groups. Um, And she says, much has been written about the painful memories she conjures, had my own difficulties wrestling with how Addie made me feel as a child. A lot of these feelings are rooted not in a disdain for Addie herself, but for the clear cut lack of choice. While white peers could pick from any number of varied characters made in their likeness, I could not. Mm. And so part of it is just about the scarcity of choice. And then when that one choice is what's considered to be the central story of trauma, it isn't the same as when people who can see themselves 
for a whole variety of reasons can say, well, I can pick to be a Felicity. I can pick to be a Molly. I can pick to be a Kirsten. And we know from how people write to us and and things that other people have shared that for some people, they don't have to look like the doll exactly for it to mirror their experience. But that's also a privilege. Mm -hmm. Like there's something really important about the fact that if you're able to make a choice to say, I can identify with one of these stories, that's very different from a company saying, we only think this one story is important for this group of people. It's really shocking to read this piece. I do encourage you to read it. Well, something I liked about it was that it gets a lot of things that I'm sure American Girl would have like kept, you know, locked in the vault, so to speak, like internal debates with Pleasant about, you know, why they decided to do a black doll then. And her very mm-hmm. transparent fears that were actually quoted in the Washington Post at the time about holding back on this decision because she was afraid it wouldn't sell, that it would be fine. It was a financial decision more than anything else. She thought you know, the African-American marketplace would not support a black doll. And obviously that was not true. But um, you can see in that time kind of attitudes driving market, like the market driving her decision, not some kind of decision to kind of complicate the larger canon of who matters in American history. I'm sure that was part of it. But and also like she assembles this board of really esteemed experts who advised on a lot of important decisions on Addie. So that was really interesting to read about as well, like who's determining a lot of decisions about her physicality, about her backstory, even locating in the story a week when there was a full moon to just Mm -hmm. to legitimize the full moon that's guiding them as they run away. It's also there's an element of this fear that it's not going to sell that's absolutely bogus because the article points out that mass produced as well as handcrafted dolls that are caricatures of African-American people have been a mainstay in toy stores and now in antique stores. Um, If you travel, you know, and you kind of go, I still think almost anywhere in the country, you will see caricatures of African-American people in the form of certain kinds of dolls. And this article talks about pickanannies and a few other kinds, Um, but you see them everywhere. Mm -hmm. And I've even seen very recently made ones in antique stores. Um, So they're not actually antiques. They're things that people have made recently, but they're stashing them in a space that they think is safe to sell. 100%. And we see these kind of conversations still now about all kinds of pop culture. Like I remember when Black Panther came out, there was all these conversations that like a superhero movie that had all black lead characters would never carry the box office. It would never draw white people to the theaters. And obviously, you know, so many people saw that was a huge hit. And so all of these things just reveal how bogus and how false and how, you know, just gross these attitudes are. And I I think something that's difficult about reading this piece and thinking about the Addie book is, you know, this book comes from 1993, this piece, think pieces from 2016. And, Mm -hmm. you know, how little has really changed in the interim in terms of kind of the stories we tell about who will be interested in black stories. And over the weekend, in the midst of watching Cheer and a series of other things, there's a really phenomenal documentary that actually came out months ago now, but it's about Toni Morrison called The Pieces That I Am. And she was someone who was very famous for saying, I write stories for black people. If white people like them, great, but I'm writing stories for black people. And, you know, someone who worked as an editor of books for decades, you know, saying, 
I'm willing to bet that there is an audience for black stories. There are black, there are readers of great stories who are not just black readers. There are people who are interested in good stories will find good stories. And, you know, so she believed that as a professional editor and as a writer. And I, I think her words really resonate with me because it seems like we're still having to have these debates that are just false debates to this day. You know, and something that I think will help us along those lines kind of get into like a few specific plot points from this book because a lot happens. It's a compact mm-hmm. book. And I think a lot happens because she's trying to get us to a different setting relatively quickly. We both also just read Such a Fun Age by Kylie Reed. Mm-hmm. And that's a book set just a few years ago. I think it's about 2015 that the book is set in. And it centers around a relationship between a young woman who's African-American who's working for a wealthy white woman. And there is a line in Addie that resonates like really closely with the plot point of that book. And we'll talk about it in more detail. But Addie and her mother run away essentially because her brother and father have been sold. Mm -hmm. So there is a financial pressure and Master Stevens decides that how he's going to solve that is he's going to separate the family. And Addie learns of this, but not quite fast enough to be able to like alert everyone. And so they are separated. Addie and her mother have to leave the rest of their family, including a baby sister. And they really have to rely on people who are able to like offer certain kinds of assistance while they're on their own trying to free themselves. And there's a scene where Addie and her mother have to sort of choose whether they're going to trust this white woman. And there's a scene and that tension is almost exactly replicated in the relationship and dynamic of this book that's set four years ago. This book is really fascinating to me, um, such a fun age, because it's kind of like what kind of relationship can people of different races have talking about race honestly and how that shapes your life because the rich white woman kind of is one of these people who's like I don't see race air quotes or I think that's what she tells herself that she's aware of it but she's woke and in fact her actions completely undermine all of her stated political beliefs and it's very performative and I think this idea of performativity is something that runs throughout this Addie book as well. Yeah, so I we'll get back into this book, Such a Fun Age, but I think it would be good to kind of start thinking about the plot points of this book because as you're saying, there's so much to cover. There's so much to go through. Yeah, we, we really first meet Addie when she is um, – and I actually really remember this part of the book quite well. Addie is pretending to sleep, and she's eavesdropping on her parents, which is like Allison 101. Oh, yeah. Um, of just eavesdropping on anyone or like pretending to be half asleep as a child to hear things. Did you have your Fisher Price recorder? <laughs> yeah. And so Addie is sleeping with her sister, and her sister is hot, and they're feeling sticky and they're uncomfortable. And Addie is listening to her parents, and there's sort of two immediate issues that the family is facing. One of which is Addie's older brother has already tried to run away and been severely punished for it. And the second is the parents are trying to decide if and when they should try to run away as a family because they're hyper aware of the fact that Mr. Stevens is interested in selling off parts of certain families to make money because of the pressure of the Civil War. Like he hasn't managed his money well, so he's trying to figure out where he can make money. 
And selling off parts of this family is one of the ways that he has thought about doing that. Right, because we should note that at this point, two things are happening. One, um, when the United States was founded, a lot of the states that these air quotes founding fathers, um, not a concept I buy into, but where they came from were states where enslaved people were of value because they could farm crops that also had a lot of value. But by this point, a lot of those states, the soil had depleted. So it was really tough going in a lot of states to make money off your crop. So the thing that held most value was your human capital, were enslaved people. And at this point in the war, that's what a lot of these folks, these slave owners had left. We should also note that this book starts in 1864, and it was 1863 when the Emancipation Proclamation was declared, but you can see how that has had no effect in the lives mm-hmm. of these people in North Carolina. And that might seem like an obvious point, but it's worth repeating that the Emancipation Proclamation freed slaves in Confederate states, but was obviously not honored there. So it's it adds a particular tension from the beginning, because you, if you know something about this, you read the book thinking, but the Emancipation Proclamation already happened. Why are these people still enslaved? And, you know, it's kind of like, it, it just adds this element of tension and drama. I also think it's so important that that isn't introduced in the book as the answer because over and over in the language of the book, which is very much in line with what's now accepted as historical interpretation of this, they use the language of they have to take their own freedom. They yeah. have to make their own freedom. They're securing it for themselves And that's very much in line with the way that this is interpreted now, which isn't that freedom is something that is granted or that appears, but that people made a series of choices to resist the institution, to escape it, to self-liberate. And there's several parts of the book where they they talk about taking it. Like they are going to take their freedom. They are going to get their freedom. And the whole time... Even though there is, you know, one scene where someone on the Underground Railroad is of some assistance to them, that's not really the central drama of the story. The central drama is Addie and her mother have to do this on their own. Yes. And I love that they use this phrase of like taking freedom throughout the book. And also that I think some a question that runs through the whole book is what does freedom mean and what does it look like and who is it for? Because to me, when you think with the Civil War, I think those are like the central questions and in many ways, central questions in American history. I've been listening to the 1619 podcast, and that's, I think, really an interesting theme running through there as well, is that they make really powerful connections between the experiences of enslaved folks and then similarly veterans of World War II who return to the same states and are treated similarly. So it kind of invites questions of, did the Civil War ever end? Is it over who has freedom? What does it mean? You know, how does it manifest in your experience? So I love that they have that kind of agency from the beginning. I also liked the sensory kind of opening of the book that it focuses so much on the heat in their cabin, that there are charcoals burning embers in the fire, and that it's just so overwhelmingly hot. But it kind of adds this sort of sensory experience of almost like hell, like you're in hell. Mm -hmm. And it creates this arc of like, you're going from hell and then Addie and her mother have to go on this almost like divine comedy arc. And in one of the last chapters, Freedom Taken, that is contrasted so clearly with the way that Addie and her mother feel when they're in basically like a safe house, Mm. right? With this woman, Caroline. And I also thought it was just so 
so well done. Um, this is if you're following along pages 58 and 59, where Addie's mother basically like pulls her very close and they've just taken baths. So they feel clean and they feel comfortable. And there are lines where, um, you know, this is the first time that they've quote slept on a real mattress, not one full of itchy corn husks. Addie tried to stay awake so she could think about how good it felt to be clean and safe, but she was too tired. And so you can really kind of picture this scene where they're finally able to kind of breathe out because they've made it to this place that they hope is safe and they are comfortable. They have clean linens. They know that they have a lot further to go, but there's, there's like a scene I feel like in every American girl book where um, a person opens a door to another person and it's terrifying because when they first arrive at this place, the woman who opens the door thinks that they are attached to a confederate camp and she's not really nice to them Mm -hmm. and so it kind of adds tension and drama and then it switches immediately when she learns why they're visiting but it's a very kind of jiggy nigh moment of tension of like what's going to happen like this person has opened their door to you and what's going to happen next and you really don't know no you really don't this book is packing so much vital information and just like a lot of action a lot of events a lot of drama but I think there's a lot of important moments to touch down on that I think are so sharp for how this is written and presented and one of them is I think kind of introducing literally on page five the idea that enslaved people have to be um, adept at performing or at remaining out like being able to control their outward um, appearance of emotion And so she's talking about when her brother Sam tried to run away and was cruelly punished when he was um, captured and brought back and basically recalling the fact that her parents didn't cry at all when he was being very savagely whipped. And she felt betrayed by that. Like, you're our parents. Why aren't you upset? And her parents have to explain basically that they were crying on the inside, but that they can't show it on the outside um on page six the father says just because you don't see us crying and carrying on um doesn't mean that we don't care and i think that it's such a striking idea that literally on page six we're confronted with the fact that Addie has to have such a rich inner emotional life and a command of her emotions to be able to literally stay alive by controlling them Yeah. And I think, again, it's really smart to do this through the eyes of a young person who's Mm. asking questions like, okay, so why are you reacting this way? And there's a similar scene where from the perspective of an adult, you're you're kind of terrified for Addie where she is doing service in the house. This is on page 16. And there is a visitor on the plantation and this couldn't be more different from the scene in Felicity um, because we're we're right in it because we're seeing it from Addie's perspective or like that point of view. And so Stevens, who owns the plantation that Addie is enslaved on, is talking to someone named Mr. Gifford. And Gifford is basically giving financial advice that has huge implications for Addie's family. And there are all of these kinds of hints about an interest in Addie, an interest in sort of like acquiring people in her family. And Addie is being asked to pour water. And the visual, which is sort of terrifying, is him touching Addie's head. And I think, you know, we're 16 pages in and there's already been three moments in the book where there's an appropriate level of understanding what's at stake all the time. And, like, Addie is basically now privy to this information of what could happen to Sam, what could happen to people in her family. 
and she spills the water in the cup. And that leads the two to have a conversation that, quote, she's too young to leave the plantation. But yeah. that also has all these other implications, like that Mr. Gifford is interested in her. Right. Like, why does her price go up when she gets older? And as adult readers, you can fill in those blanks, especially because we're just pages after meeting Aunt Lula, who is described in ways that I think hint that she is the result of a relationship between perhaps the owner's family and enslaved people. Um, And so as adults reading this, it is kind of shocking to see how many different ways there are like there's so many different levels at which to read this book like you can be a nine-year-old and read this book and under I didn't catch that I'll say that when I read this book the first time I didn't catch any of that but then reading this as an adult it's almost more chilling because you see this nine-year-old girl and that illustration is so chilling because on the one hand seeing the owner's hand on her head in such a way where we can kind of imagine what he's thinking about her value um, and why it would increase as she gets older to this other slave trader. But also looking at the look on her face in these illustrations, she has that blank face that her parents had been kind of hinting at before, which is kind of like you might be a sea of you know, terror and anger inside, but externally, literally for your own survival, you have to have a blank expression. And I think reading that, excuse me, it made me really reflect back on a lot of research that's being done about how trauma is generational and inherited. And you can just see the ways that having to perform that way and carry that violence and that trauma literally could scar not only someone like Addie, but, you know, generations to come. Well, and the next kind of major plot point is that the family decides that it's it's the time for Addie and her mother to escape and they have assistance from other people who have kind of like put things together for them um including a hat and Addie is going to kind of hide and try to appear as a boy while they're fleeing and there's a really heartbreaking scene where Addie and her mother talk about the fact that her younger sister Esther can't come. Mm. And Addie is asking like questions for the reader, you know, to have like more elegant explanation rolled out, which is like, well, why, why can't Esther come? Esther is part of the family. And the mother has to explain that it's just too risky. Like the mother is explaining all these different things that have come into it. And I think what they do, a really shrewd job of showing is like what the family knows and what they don't know about life outside the plantation, Mm. because theoretically they're not supposed to know anything because it's illegal. You know, they're not supposed to have meetings without the presence of a white person. They're not supposed to know, you know, how a railroad would function, but they do. And there's a lot of references to a man named Solomon in their family and the notion being like he has told them what they need to know. Um, but they obviously don't have access to like verifiable information. Like they have to trust that they heard it correctly, that they understand it, and that they can go on that to leave. Mm-hmm. And like they have no, like they have not been able to have any of that experience firsthand. Like you think back to when Kirsten hops on a railroad. She at least has experience with, like, steamboats, right? Right. Like, Addie is being told that they're going to go to railroad tracks. Literally, her being able to know about that is illegal and punishable by death in her life. 
Right. And also, I mean, Kirsten is traveling openly with her family in daylight Mm. in a way that she knows she will not be in any physical danger just by her appearance or, you know, the ways that the liberties that she takes with even knowledge of a train schedule or how trains work or directions or traveling without a pass or any number of things that carried heavy punishment. And it's just I think the book does a really good job of conveying the desperation that fuels these kind of acts where I kind of felt terror on their behalf. Like, God, did I really hope their directions are right. Like, I hope that they have the right information. I hope no one has confused anything to them. I hope they have enough food. And But there's also kind of this wish kind of – he mentions Uncle Solomon magic when he gives them clothes that are uh, with someone else – carrying someone else's scent so that if dogs are sent after them, they won't be able to follow their scent as easily. And they're going to mm. travel dressed as both a man and a boy. And he puts a hat on her set and says, this is a magic hat. But in that moment when he's kind of trying to lighten things up for her and and reference magic, it does make me think about kind of the sense of magic or wish fulfillment that her mother has to go into this really treacherous flight with because, as you noted, she has to leave her baby at home because the baby, it would be impossible to travel with a baby that far um, and not maybe be given away by the baby crying or so and so on. She's already lost her husband and son um, to this sale, but they carry with them this wish that they will all be reunited um, in Philadelphia. They present this as, you know, with, like you're saying, no sense of life outside the plantation, but they have this wish, this sense of magic that somehow this might happen if they have faith. And I think it just creates such big stakes in the first book. Um, I do want to return with you to an important conversation that they had just before she revealed the decision to leave Esther behind. And this is on page 24. Um, And this is when Addie is sort of venting to her mom about everything that's just happened, about having to lose her father and brother. Um, And Addie says, I hate them, Mama. I hate white people. And the mother responds by saying, if you fill your heart with hate, um, there'll, there'll be no room for love. So what do you make of that moment, Allison? I think there's a few different ways to read it. And I think we would love to have all been there when the first draft went in <laughs> and yeah. Connie Porter had that line and then whether the subsequent paragraphs, like the second part that you were reading about needing to make space for love, right? Whether that was an addition. Um, I think because we know the whole plot of the book, I think part of what's happening there is they are going to have to rely on people. They're going to have to rely on abolitionists, some of whom would be white, many of whom would have been black in their network to try to make this escape. And I think it goes back to that very first scene where the parents are trying to basically give her coping skills. Right. So it's not so much about like what these people who have done terrible things to them deserve, but about how they are going to make it through the situation. Mm -hmm. Um, The, the Brian Stevenson book that just got turned into a film, just mercy is really actually all about this, which is mercy is not treating people exactly as they 
deserve in society. It's understanding what is merciful and that that's often different. Mm. And to me, that kind of reads as a conversation on um, how how is the mother going to enable her to function, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's not saying these white people are good. It's not saying they are all helpful. They are almost all not mm-hmm. – you know, you know, they are antithetical to their survival, but, but, but like, how are we going to function? Because the dream, the place that they want to get to is a multicultural, multiracial city. Right. So in some ways it's like a moment of, well, how is Addie going to be like, how is Addie going to adjust to this? Well, one way is to say like, okay, like this is within the context of this experience. Like these are feelings that you have. But a strategy might be like thinking slightly differently, even though people are absolutely deserving of these feelings that you have. Like that's where the mercy part comes in. Yeah, no, I think that's spot on. And I think that's totally true. I think there's also another level to this. So there's the way that this dialogue functions within the world of the story. But then we have to, I think, think about the way that this plays in the world of American Girl. And as you're saying in the pitch meeting, you know, if somebody hands in, you know, we get the first draft of this and it says, I hate white people and Pleasant Rollin reads this, what do we imagine her response is? As someone who's given a quote to the Washington Post saying she's afraid that financially this isn't the best decision to have a black doll, Um, you know, are they afraid of a story that might have – shock criticism of white culture and what it's meant for black people in this country in the past and still now you know is that something that can exist in a marketplace and turn a profit is that something that will isolate their readership um where are the conversations about that and you know where did those happen at american girl i also think it's like you know we we last talked you know before um Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day, but people are always very fond of pulling out the quote about love Mm -hmm. and like the way that love conquers hate, but without actually putting that into the full context of part of what he's saying is like love is a survival strategy, just like mercy. Mm -hmm. And it's not about, it's not about people deserving that love or deserving that mercy, but exactly the opposite. Yeah, And it's like, if you just pull that one line out, it sounds like something very different. But the mother is very blunt towards the last five or so pages of the book. And there is a line that they, quote, have to trust the white woman. If we don't, where are we going to go? Mm. And and it's it's a it's a survival moment of they have escaped. It was actually a pretty harrowing moment of Addie accidentally stumbling on a Confederate camp. And then they end up being able to get out of that Addie performs she plays it cool she's able to just kind of stay to the side they misunderstand and think that she is a young boy who is basically like a camp aide that they have and they continue on and they get to the house and things do work out right like this this woman is able to provide them with some tools that they need to keep going and that's where Addie gets her kind of iconic pink dress that we know her from mm-hmm but it could have gone very differently. And it also could have just gone differently if those soldiers had knocked on the door while they're there. A hundred percent. Yeah. I was thinking that too. Like after they got into the house, I was sort of, even though I know they knew they didn't, I was afraid that they were going to come knocking or that when Miss Caroline takes them the next day to the boat, that's going to take them to Philadelphia, that they would be, you know, 
they would be found out hiding in the back of the carriage under a blanket. And it is interesting that there is so much deception in this book and so much, in a sense, there's passing in this book, but it's gender passing. Like Addie Mm -hmm. has to pass as a boy and she does convincingly on two occasions, convincing the Confederate soldier she's a boy and Miss Caroline when she opens the door, as you mentioned in that moment at the doorway. And it's, there is, we're setting up something here with Addie that in order to survive, she has to know how to kind of play white people or how to live in this world, but also has to be smarter than everyone else or has to be just extremely intelligent. We see that cultivation of that with her brother through this use of riddles that when she would take water out in the fields to him, he would always have a riddle for her and her delight in solving it almost immediately and getting the praise from him of how smart she was. I think we're meant to see that as foreshadowing about something that's intrinsic to her character, which is her intelligence. Well, to be clear, Part of why she hates people on the plantation is she is really directly punished partially for that cleverness by having worms shoved down her throat. Yep. That scene was so chilling to me. Honestly, I forgot that scene. And when I landed on that, it was so stunning. I mean, the author does a great job of, again, sensory experiences of describing what it feels like to have worms gush open in your mouth. It's, It's harrowing. Like Addie has a few different tasks that she's responsible for, one of which is she brings water to people out in the fields, including her own brother, so members of her family. She also is seen in the house pouring water when Stevens and Gifford are eating. But the primary thing that she does is she deworms the tobacco plants. So she's physically picking these worms off of the plants and You know, she talks about how she hates it. She doesn't really like doing it. And then, like, is very directly punished for what's interpreted as her disobedience by having these worms shoved down her mouth. There's so much torture and trauma throughout this book. It is really harrowing to get through. And I think that's what makes it all the more – you kind of sense that relief when they get to Miss Caroline's house. And I think I was so – like just wired at that point because of the scene hinting at future sexual abuse, like so much going on, their escape, the division of the family, so much violence that when they get there and it's like, we're going to sleep in a real bed for the first time in our lives. Mm -hmm. And the price of that is we're separated from our family and, you know, we could potentially still be caught. The tension is so real that the relief also feels like the payoff is that much greater for these kind of sensory, new sensory experiences, Um, particularly of the day that they're about to go onto the ship. She tries on a new dress that Miss Caroline has given her and says, the narrator writes, it was prettier than any she had imagined when she dreamed about freedom. So having these sensory dreams about, again, like taking their own freedom, but manifesting it or realizing it in material objects... And I think part of what's important, too, she has the shoelace that belonged to her brother, and she has the cowrie shell that she wears. Mm -hmm. And years ago now, but one of the first places where I ever did tours, they had made this discovery not that long ago, which was they had always known, but hadn't always talked about, but had changed that, um, talking about enslaved people who had lived in the historic house and where they lived and that it was the top four, the least comfortable, right, the most cramped, all these things. And they did investigations inside the house and they found a bundle. And they determined later that it was actually probably one of the more significant finds in a really long time in the state because it was something that people had speculated about 
thought existed, but there are very few examples of, which is a bundle of sort of both um, ordinary turned sacred objects that were collected by enslaved people and kept together in cloth bundles. Mm. And often there were cowrie shells in those bundles. And I remember being led through and trained on this tour. And my first thought was like, of course, Addie wears a cowrie shell. Mm-hmm. And so like the way that you come through the world and you obtain different kinds of knowledge. I know that Addie was one of the first times that I learned about slavery. I'm sure it was for other people, mm-hmm. but not for people for whom that might relate to a grandparent or a great grandparent. Mm-hmm. Like that functions differently in families. But that bundle, pieces of that actually were brought to D.C. when the new Museum of African-American History was opened because it's considered such a vital example of something that people knew probably existed. But for a whole lot of reasons, most of which are neglect of these kinds of stories, you don't actually get to see it. And when I was working there you know, over a decade ago or close to a decade ago now, it was kept in this case that you could actually show people Hmm. and to think that within a few years, it was brought down to the opening of that museum. Like it really is this hugely important find and to connect that to a story that I think Addie helped to make mainstream for some people. Yeah, I know for me, that's, I think, probably the most iconic piece of her iconography as, as part of the American Girl brand. So it was nice to kind of be reacquainted with that in the book and the origin story there as well. And I think a book that gets at a lot of what, you know, is kind of described or talked about with like the relationships in Addie's family. Jacqueline Jones, who's written a lot about Black women's work and relationships in families in both the Plantation South and then in the North, she wrote this very big, very important book called Labor of Love, Labor of Sorrow. And I feel like a lot of the scenes that happen in Addie like so directly relate to her scholarship. So like that's something that interests you. She's a fantastic writer and it will help you understand better probably why this was written as it was. Yes. Um, I also just want to, while we're still on the dress and material culture, recommend a different book that I think that you will Mm. um, also co-sign. And that's The Volia Glimpse Out of the House of Bondage because when I was reading this book – That's what I was thinking about when I got to the scene where Addie gets her new dress and equates her new dress um, with her dreams of freedom because this book, Out of the House of Bondage, actually recounts the violence that existed in um, Southern homes with enslaved people between their former white female owners and the women, formerly enslaved women, for whom they lived and worked before the war and after, and how Reconstruction changed the structure of their relationships because often these women... Slave owners were impoverished by the war or brought low by the war financially and so actually had to then pay or sell some of their own garments to some of their formerly enslaved women um, and hire them to do different tasks. And so becoming um, able to purchase their own clothes, some of these women, one particular that she quotes is named Virginia Newman, who said her first bought dress represented her freedom. So it kind of for her stood in for her ability to have control over her whole life. Um, And I think it's interesting that that's vested in a commodity and in a material thing. So again, when we think about freedom, what does that mean for enslaved women in the past? It's um, in this case, in her book, it's in these material objects, in these debates with their former 
um, the the people who claimed ownership over them. So I think that's what it, that piece with Addie made me think of. Even though it's kind of an inversion there, the freedom represents the dress represents her freedom. It's given to her by a woman sympathetic to her plight, who's helping her to escape to take her own freedom. Um, but in the past, here we see that uh, fashion and material culture can represent something else or have a different context. Absolutely. I mean, like the pure pleasure with which she holds up the dress mm-hmm. is really such an important scene. And again, you want to talk about just like an extremely well-written book. A lot of intense and traumatic things happen in this story. But there are also these other moments that in in a way that you feel differently about each character, you're so invested like, yes. I can't wait to read the next book. Like, I'm very invested. And I know that she goes to Philadelphia. I know she makes it. Spoilers. Yes. Thank I God. I feel like she's ice cream at some point. Whew. I hope that's true. I really do hope that's true. Um, I did get Addie's World. So I have, like, the large, colorful book that kind of gets into, like, what her life would have been like. And in much the same way that we were just super impressed with the research team And how much went into, like, the peek into the past with Josefina. If you look at the people who were chosen to consult on this book, it's, like, the top people in the country doing this at the time. So it's, like, the top scholar at Howard who works in the archives. Like, it's all very important people. And I think it shows, you Mm -hmm. know? Oh, yeah, totally. Like, we're not talking about made-up places. We're talking about, like, real events filtered through a nine-year-old, which I think is key. Right. And also Um, like looking up the moon when there was a full moon, like an actual week to set that. I'm like, wow, that attention to detail is really impressive. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I'm sure we'll learn more about her sign in future books. (laughs) Let's hope. Yes. Yeah. Um, As a quick kind of aside, because someone did reach out to us. Monica from Cheer actually didn't reach out to us. We wish. Monica, please call us. Um, But we do kind of want to cheer on someone who has been a really wonderful supporter of the show. And her name is Molly. Wow. Right. Like spot on. Um, So Molly Shoemaker, very important people in your life, reached out to us. And they wanted us to share a message with you, which is that we hope you have an excellent 30th birthday. Right? 30 is a great year. It's great. It's a great year. So that means you were born in 90. Congrats. Congrats. Um, and we also just wanted to say to you, never forget that after the war, women wore pants. And you'll know what that means. Okay. I mean. That's, that's Molly's favorite line from the Molly books. Oh, okay. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. Molly, I hope you have an amazing 30th birthday. I don't know what you have planned or your friends have planned for you. I went and saw Dolly Parton concert. I'm just saying that was a great that was a great time to be alive. And if that works for you, you know, I'd love to send you just a YouTube video of Dolly singing Jolene, like whatever you need. We can do that. Yeah, we probably can. I was going to spin out a whole tale based on who shares her birthday. And then I thought maybe she doesn't want everyone to know what date is her birthday. Wow. Um, I will say it is not the drop date, but this drop date, and I know you're not supposed to date your podcast, but February 3rd is the anniversary of the passage of the 15th Amendment which is what would have allowed Sam and Addie's father to vote if they had made it to Philadelphia. Um, but sadly, not Addie Esther or her mother. But we can talk about that Ooh, some other time. That's definitely true. And, yes. you know, we're, I just need to talk about someone who I would love to vote for, though she's not running, whose birthday it is today as we record. And that's, of course, Oprah Winfrey. 
Nice. Very nice. Happy birthday, Oprah. You'll never listen to this show. Well, you know, you never know, first of all. And I recently saw that commercial of her expressing that she loves bread. Mm -hmm. And my husband was like, does she need to work? And I was like, no, no, she actually loves bread that much. She does. You know what? She loves the game that much. And I respect she does. that. I she totally does. respect that. The fact that she is consistently on every cover of O Magazine and she has never let that go. No. As a Leo, it's like, wow, you are shining so bright. You're living so large. <laughs> God bless. Now, if people want to give birthday wishes to Oprah through you, how should they find you? Wait, 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 wait. <gasps> oh, you have a Wait a second. Pop culture. Wait yeah. a moment. Yes. I'm about to treat you like it's your birthday. I'm really nervous. <laughs> Why? Allison, please. Yeah. Allison, no. You have to know that I've been sitting on this clip for approximately a year. Yeah. I did, you know, even though I've known about it for a year, I did delay our recording start time because I refused to rip this off YouTube into an MP3 until literally like 10 minutes past when I was supposed to call you. That's just how I live. That's how I live my life. Please accept <laughs> yeah. that. Now, look, Allison, in the annals of TV history, I think there has to be a big place for a wonderful show called Cribs. Yes. Now, listen, you and I have many things that unite us. Um, apparently, having you see Breeze is not one of them. I'm pushing through that. I'm working through that. <laughs> but we do love a house tour. I would love to play for you the first minute, 20 seconds of an episode that takes us through one Joey McIntyre's house. Now, do you know who that is? Of course. He's from New Kids. That's right. And so NKOTB. And, and KOTB, and that's an important point because I can't tell anymore if this is during the NKOTB period. I believe it's still a few years shy of him. You know, they've kind of relaunched. They're on tour all the time now, and they've kind of had a renaissance, so good for them. But this is between that. So he, at this point, I think, was doing Broadway musicals and whatnot. So just keep nice. that in mind. I know this is an audio medium, but just to set the scene, and I will post the YouTube clip, he answers the door in a black workout sleeveless tee that goes with pants that don't match and I, I can't let that go so just have that in your mind okay Allison we here we go a piece of American history come on in I don't think he has the right stuff for this wait well, this house was built in 1740 this room we're in right now was built in 1800 I bought this house when I was 17 my mother found it at the time and I'm still young for the house <laughs> Is he? I tried to stay true <laughs> to the vibe of the house. It's old, so I'm not going to get, you know, Jermaine Dupree on you. You know what I'm saying? This is a, a 1930s mahogany piano. And, of course, you got to keep the right music on the pedestal there. It's a picture this of him at 17. To, to look like I Love. can play. See that? This is my favorite room because this is part of the Underground Railroad. When they were looking for slaves, <laughs> no, it absolutely was yes. not. It absolutely was. But it's enough to hide a few people. I hope you feel the the depth of it all. <laughs> I don't think this ever happened. Just direct quote. It's not a lot of space. It's not a lot of space, and that's at a moment when we see him literally go down a ladder into a basement. I think this is like this is where drunk history came from. Yeah. 
I think like, about this scene all the time. It's like worlds colliding. Who'd have thunk a new kid on the block would be, you know, dabbling in real estate because he wanted to own a piece of the Underground Railroad. American history, American dream. You know, he did say, like, I'm going to take you on a tour of American history. It's like, this is the house tour I want. I couldn't agree more. That that was well worth it. Thank you for sharing that piece with us. Listen, I'm here to provide all kinds of primary texts in American history and our sprint through American history, and I'm glad I could share that with you. Thank you. If folks have other things they want to share with you, like what's the best place to reach you? Listen, you can find me on Instagram at Mimi Mahoney. I love when people reach out to me with all kinds of TV and book and history recommendations, hard-hitting questions, whatever's on your mind. I post what I'm reading and listening to on my bookstagram, which is at Books and Sound. On Twitter, you can find me at Mary Mahoney 123 Now, Allison, look, if people have any leads for us on our investigation into who dropped Sherbs, where do we find you? So they can find me at Allison Horrocks. You can see how my name is spelled in the show notes. Um, You can follow our podcast at American Girls Podcast on Instagram. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Pod, And we also love to hear from you via email. You can reach out to us there at americangirlspod at gmail.com. And we just want to say a quick thanks again to all of our Patreon patrons. We are so overwhelmed by everyone who signed up so far. If you've signed up, you've gone with us on our journey to the American Girl Store by this point. And in February, we hope that you'll join us. Some will say that our next choice is rhythmic. I hope that you have time for it. Um, And if you have listened way back we'll just call this an american rev fever dream that's enough hints for now i mean i'm already freaked out and i'm gonna need some counseling after this one i've already read the book i'm gonna reread it i can't wait we're gonna call it 50 shades of no way 50 shades of absolutely not that's what i would like to call this <laughs> i love it I it's can't wait. oh my god i'm gonna lose it i can't wait so <laughs> that is gonna be like just in time for valentine's day or maybe slightly after so if you've not joined us so far not too late to sign up it's you can find us at i think patreon.com slash american girls podcast mm-hmm. mm-hmm. absolutely you know three dollars a month funds our investigations funds our certification as private <laughs> investigators and our far-flinging, you know, reading and watching adventures to supplement this show. So thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you on our next episode. Yeah, thank you so much.